If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Things were dangerous enough without the addition of mad men, but Alan Wake wrote a horror story. There's no plot armor allowed. There must be violence and intrigue at every turn. No one is safe and no one is immune. At the trailer park entrance, the police have arrived. The park manager was worried about Rose, so he gave them a call. And it's an immediately tense situation because, you know, it's completely normal human behavior to arrive someplace and draw your gun on some random dude. Introducing Agent Nightingale. And what's not immediately apparent is that Nightingale was fired. He's not actually with the FBI anymore. His former partner, a man named Finn, was as straight-laced as he once was. But once Finn became obsessed with darkness, Nightingale's life started to fall apart. His partner vanished somehow and it ate Nightingale up inside. When Nightingale started having nightmares about the darkness, he started drinking. He became erratic and violent, thus he was fired from the FBI. Now that he's here in front of Alan Wake, a man that he has seen in his worst nightmares, possibly the source of the darkness in his mind, Nightingale is an unhinged, paranoid, unreasonable man, and he wants to kill him. Nightingale starts shooting, putting everyone around him at risk and Alan takes off running, because to hell with that! He runs through the dark forest, evading the police. And during this pursuit, Sheriff Breaker contacts Agent Nightingale, asking him just what the actual hell he's doing, firing on civilians, disregarding local authority, using her police force as a weapon for himself. But Nightingale is a righteous piece of work. He's unstable and will do whatever he pleases, even if that means unloading his weapon towards innocent people. Alan Wake is his target, and he will not give up his chase. So, Wake runs, into the darkness of the forest, away from any other people who could help him. Wake still had an appointment to keep with Mott, at the coal mine. In complete desperation, he spots a radio tower in the distance, and decides that maybe a local popular talk radio DJ named Pat Main can help him. He had met Pat on the ferry ride in, so he knows that he's here. Wake knows that he's a fan, and in the very least, maybe Pat can give him directions to the coal mine. It is one hell of a run, dodging the Taken, dodging the police, trying to make his way to that radio station. It takes what feels like hours, but he makes it all on his own. And once inside, Pat Main spots Alan and is all too happy to take this chance to interview the writer. Live on the air, of course. As soon as he enters that studio, the police pull up, or more specifically, Agent Nightingale does, with a bullhorn. Now, Pat Main has no idea what this is all about. He's gotten some call-ins from locals telling him some juicy gossip from around town, but he's not expecting the entire local police force to just roll up and start making demands via a bullhorn. Nightingale has his gun out, pointed at Maine and Wake. It's entirely inappropriate and very confrontational to the point of not making any sense. Sheriff Breaker is on the scene to challenge Nightingale, but he still discharges his weapon. He shoots at Wake and Pat Maine, with little warning as though his intention was murder. So of course, Alan takes off again, and now local radio personality Pat Maine has one hell of a story to tell on air. Well, now Alan needs to find his own way to the mine. His first stop would be the train depot, and what a hell of a trek this is going to be. There were manuscript pages, of course, giving insight into characters, their thoughts, their motivations, but very little helped with the complete aggression of the Dark Presence and the Taken. During his trek, Alan got a call and on the other end he heard Alice's voice, but it was as though someone had recorded a conversation with her and then cut it up to sound foreboding. But for a terrified husband, 
It's the worst sort of call that he can get. It was just making matters so much worse. Alan hoped he could find a car at the train depot. He can see a warehouse nearby. Surely there was something in there that could help him. It was almost dawn by the time he found a truck that he could use. But with daylight comes safety. The dark presence couldn't pursue him in the light. As he drove, Alan came to terms with his new reality. His manuscript was actually coming to life. It's like he was just playing his part in a play. And the depths of its truth were deeper than he could realize. It was like he was insane, but it was all so tangible and true. It felt like the entire world had been overtaken by the dark presence, and he was next. Every manuscript page he finds tells of a tragedy, of something frightening happening to him. But peril is what good horror stories do, right? No one is safe. Not even the protagonist, especially not the protagonist. He made it to the coal mine on time, though, and he waited patiently for the kidnapper to appear. His mind went wild considering what they had done to Alice and the things that he would do to them to get her back. He waited there all day, but Mott never appeared. He finally called, though, well after sun went down, of course, when they would all be more vulnerable to the dark presence. Mott orders him to trek to a nearby mountain to a spot called Mirror Peak, as though walking around at night is a simple task. But Mott is just such an asshole and an abuser of any power that he has, and Wake has no choice. He has to go to Mirror Peak. And it's the longest stretch of combat yet. We've reached the waves part of the story. That Mott waited until dark to do this could not have been unintentional. And he's certainly somebody's goon. He's working for someone. What's the point in making Wake go through something so extremely dangerous? Within a cave system, head pain starts rushing onto him, and afterwards he hears Alice's screaming down the tunnel. That head pain, it usually is an indicator that the dark presence is near. Hearing her in such distress lights a fire underneath him, perhaps a bit of motivation to hurry the hell up, or an attempt to manipulate him. Although the dark presence also keeps throwing entire train cars at him from long distances, so maybe it just wants to make his death an emotionally painful one as well. Speaking of painful deaths, Mirror Peak is close to Cauldron Lake, and when Wake arrives, he hears, well, Mott, begging forgiveness from a lady that he and his boss didn't know they were messing with. Looks like they have been getting in the way of the Dark Presence's planning, and it's not too happy about it. Mott also doesn't have custody of Alice. They just assumed she'd drowned or something. They wanted to get Alan to write for them. Well, time to say goodbye, Mott. The Dark Presence pulls him into a vortex and tries to bring Alan with it. A flare repels it briefly enough to release him, but he falls straight into the lake below and he sinks down into the darkness, where he sees himself riding and then a man in a diving suit and then the hand of somebody reaching into the water for him. Ugh, not this guy again. No, not her. This guy. Emil Hartman. Apparently, he had to give Wake a sedative. He's speaking to him as though they've gone through this before. Alan has experienced a supposedly rough period. Hartman tells Alan that he's been a patient at his clinic for quite a long time, since the death of his wife. Just, God, such a punchable face. Alan doesn't stay awake for long, but when he finally does reawaken, it's a bright, sunny day out, and he is groggy as hell. Hartman has backup now to force Wake into compliance, or at least keep him from throwing any more punches. He's a highly manipulative man, and he is so good at it. After all, he's been doing this since as early as the 1970s at this point. No telling how many troubled souls have gone through his clinic that he has used and harmed for the sake of his own supposed research. He takes Alan on a brief stroll through the clinic, a sort of tour. He tells Alan about his practice, his patients, why he's here, that Alice is dead, 
And he's so tactical about it that Wake really starts to question himself. He starts to wonder if Hartman isn't actually telling him the truth, that he's been experiencing a break from reality, if something didn't actually happen to Alice. Put the two options against one another. Either Alice drowned in a tragic accident and he's struggling to cope with the loss, or he's fighting supernatural forces of darkness in an attempt to save her from an alternate reality, and he's been writing in an effort to manipulate his own reality in order to bring her back to life. Which one is more likely? Yet still, Alan doesn't give in. He's been through too much to just believe that it was all a psychotic break. There are too many unexplainable variables, like Barry Wheeler. Where is Barry? There are a few other patients around, a video game designer, a painter, the Anderson brothers being their heavy metal selves. Dr. Hartman leaves Alan with them, encouraging him to eventually make it back to his room to resume writing. Tor and Odin have a lot to say about understanding the nature of the world. It takes crazy to know crazy. They call Alan by an interesting name, Tom Zane. They say that he should get out to their farm, Valhalla. They had written something about everything happening now, in case they forgot about it. A crash course with everything that he would need to get his head right. And even if Alan is a little disconnected from reality, that's just, that's just far too interesting a prospect to ignore, right? Besides, they gave him permission to get into the moonshine. Holy hell yeah, brother! A storm outside is brewing, and the lights in the place are rather undependable, but he can't just walk out. There are faculty at the doors preventing anyone from leaving. The presence of light that he is known as Thomas Zane shows him another clip of himself, when he was in the cabin for that missing week. It's nearing the end of his time there, when he was starting to realize that the dark presence was using him to escape, that he wasn't any closer to saving Alice, when he started taking matters into his own hands. There's a hole in her chest where her heart should be. With no way out now, he goes back to his room and he sits at the typewriter. But just looking at the page, it makes his eyes hurt. His hands shook uncontrollably before it. As he struggled against the feeling, the Anderson brothers started a bit of a prison riot in the foyer. This could be an opportunity to get the hell out of here. Wake sauntered down to see what was going on and found that they had clocked the hell out of the on-site nurse, and they had cornered the security guard, Birch, in a back room. He's locked himself in, and he sure as hell is not going to come out to tango with the Anderson brothers. So, all Alan needs to do is grab the keys from Hartman's office and trot his buns right on out of this place. En route, he finds a picture of Hartman with the kidnapper Mott, so that's who Mott was working for. What an asshole. He also finds tapes of Hartman interviewing Alice. It's how they got voice samples to mess with him over the phone. And just down the hallway, Alan hears Barry, oh, his best friend, really upset about something that Hartman has done. Seems that the cops found Barry at Rose's trailer, but didn't give him too much grief. Well, except for that Nightingale guy. He really wants to track down Wake, and the threat of a lawsuit apparently didn't really matter to him. But Barry knew where to find Alan because Dr. Hartman himself had called. The good doctor told Barry that he should come down to the clinic to pick Wake up, and once he was there, Hartman had his employees hit Barry and lock him up in this room. The two of them get in Hartman's office and find that he has taken all his collected manuscript pages and his belongings. And Emil just, he cannot let anything go. He creeps out of the shadow and starts in on his manipulative tactics again, and he only lets up on the facade when Alan points a gun at him. It's sort of a dark turn when Alan sends Barry out of the room to pull around the car, and Barry seems to realize it, but he still complies with Alan's orders. Once he's gone, though, the dark presence makes itself known. 
It's now in the room with them, and Alan bolts for the door, holding it closed behind him. Hartman tries to follow him, pulling on the door, but the dark presence takes Dr. Emil Hartman. While he does not die, his part in this tale has ended for now. When the door stops shaking, Alan walks away with a smile on his face. There is no more doubt. Not for Alan, not for Barry. They're fully invested in everything happening here. This is reality now. Getting out of the lodge until where Barry is waiting with the car is going to be difficult with the chaos of the Dark Presence now here. He has to deal with dark corridors, a hedge maze, the Taken, and ravens. When finally he reaches Barry, night has fully fallen and the lodge is in shambles. He tells Barry that they're not leaving Bright Falls. They are going to the Anderson's farm. And though his friend is none too happy about it, he doesn't really argue against it either. As they race up the roads, Alan tells him that, yeah, he's probably crazy, but he's not wrong. Mott and Hartman never had Alice. She's trapped in the lake. Maybe dealing with all of this does require a level of insanity just to make it through. The lake does something to works of art, things relative to the creator. In Alan's case, it enacts the will of his writings, but the dark presence, it twists things to serve itself, to fulfill whatever wants it may have. And Alan knows now that it's using him to take things over, possibly invade this reality. It happened to Zane and the Anderson brothers, but with Wake, it can fully break free, not just enact control through the body of a dead woman, it can take over everyone. And Barry is actually completely on board. He believes in Wake and everything that he is saying. He has gone true, ride or die, though he still questions the choice of driving into the storm rather than beside it or away from it. Alan tells him that the Andersons were too far gone with their dementia to say what they really meant, but they wrote down what happened to them or a lead on what to do about it. And it's at their farm. They need to find it. A well-placed rock slide punts their vehicle off the road, an extremely dangerous wreck that they're both very lucky to walk away from. Alan is thrown from the car but is able to just sort of walk it off. And Barry is able to get out a little ways down the road, but they're close enough to the farm that they can both make it on foot, just on different paths. Alan's path is going to be a lot more difficult than Barry's, though. And, well, he doesn't have his gun anymore. During his long journey down the hillside, Wake spots a blue pickup truck hauling ass up the road. He thinks that it might be Barry, but they'd agreed to meet down at the farm, so who the hell is this? He spots it again a bit further along the path and sees it stopping at a nearby cabin. Maybe he would find a friendly face that could give him a ride down to the farm, or maybe it actually is Barry coming up to retrieve him. Before he reaches the cabin, the light of Thomas Zane appears to him, telling him that he has been trying to deliver manuscript pages to him at the right time and right place to show him how the story goes. Alan knows who and what the light source is now. He understands how the manuscript pages fit into all of this, that he wrote of the Dark Presence's growing strength. Because if a story structure isn't natural, if it doesn't make sense, then it won't work. Contrivances, Hail Marys, Deus Ex Machinas, plot armor, they don't belong in this story and he must still yet write an ending befitting that. But if he has to write his own death, his own vanishing, if it means saving Alice, saving the world, will he be able to do it? Nearby that cabin, Wake finds a gun and ammo stash, so now he can fight against the darkness. When he reaches the cabin, finally, he doesn't see any signs of the driver, but when he's inside, the screaming begins. It's a male voice crying out either in terror or pain or maybe both. Upstairs, Wake finds a man that he had seen at the jail the other day, Walt. He had been in the tank for hurting his friend Danny and then going on a bit of a bender. Walt knew that something was wrong with Danny. He wasn't acting like himself. The darkness was in him. 
Walt came out here to get a couple jars of moonshine but was attacked by the Taken, and poor Walt dies not too long after Wake arrives. In the next room, the light of Thomas Zane reveals another clip of Wake's week of writing. In this segment, Wake fully realizes what he needs to do to stop the Dark Presence. He needs to change his manuscript. He writes himself back into the story as the protagonist, and for this to work, he needs to enact the story in its entirety. He needs to be an organic protagonist. He cannot remember what he himself wrote. There must be victims, heroes, cliffhangers, tragedy, the whole gambit of peril. And the manuscript pages would be as his guide once he begins to play his part. Alan takes poor Walt's truck from the cabin and finally gets down to the Anderson's farm, where hopefully Barry is safely awaiting his arrival. He knew the Anderson brothers had been rock stars, but actually seeing the massive stage in their field really opens his eyes to just how hard they rocked. It's also the perfect spot to fight off hordes of the Taken, as perfectly exemplified by Barry Wheeler's ridiculously perfectly timed slide up the stage while being chased by them. They can use the pyrotechnics and fireworks rigged up on the stage to destroy any of the Taken that get too close to them. Over the course of a song, they take out dozens of them all over the farmstead. Not all of them, but enough to make the place traversable on foot. They make it through the Anderson Brothers' barn, and they learn a bit more about their encounter with the Dark Presence back in 1976. They chance across their Wicked Moonshine production area, and eventually make it through to the main house. It's a pretty awesome area too, called Valhalla, and surprisingly sparse inside. It's not a place that's really been lived in for quite some time. It has an air of abandonment to it. Not that the Anderson brothers didn't try to come back out here often, they just weren't really able to be independent. They weren't trustworthy enough for that sort of thing. Alan gets the power back on in the house, and as soon as he does, a song starts playing. Lady of the Light, or rather, one line in particular keeps repeating. Find the Lady of the Light, gone mad with the night. Barry thinks that the lyrics are referring to that crazy light bulb lady, Cynthia Weaver. They sit down together and go through each line of the song. It almost seems prophetic to them in this situation, like somehow the Anderson brothers set out directions to help them in the future. Well, they can't really be going out in the dark right now, it's not safe. So they make camp in the Anderson brothers' living room, listen to some good music, and then get smashed on moonshine. They get hammered, but it's a special kind of hammered. This stuff was made from water, straight from Cauldron Lake. Guests to the Anderson farm said it was the stuff of legend, and once he's passed out, Wake starts having crazy vivid dreams. He remembers the night that he and Alice were at Diver's Isle, in that cabin on the lake. He follows his own footsteps within the dream, remembers diving in after Alice into the lake, but he goes beyond that as well to events that he had forgotten. He sees himself come up from the water onto the dock when the woman in black approached him. She manipulated the distraught rider back into the cabin to the upstairs where the typewriter was waiting. It had its hooks in him. It was already exerting control over him. It told him that Alice was upstairs waiting for him to go apologize. Once he's in the room, the woman in black flips her story. She tells Alan that Alice is dead and that it's his fault. She was only trying to help him write and he killed her. But he could use the power of the lake to undo it. All he has to do is write and do what the woman in black tells him to do. He can still fix this. And in his grief, he complied. He remembers everything now. He remembers what he wrote, what the woman in black dictated to him, how he knew something here was terribly wrong, that he wrote Zane into the story, and that everything can come crashing down and his story can fail with a single misstep. He needs to finish the story, but that doesn't mean that the ending is near. When he wakes up, 
Agent Nightingale is pointing a gun at him. He tells him that something is Alan's fault and that he is going to pay for it. And to his mild credit, he doesn't shoot Alan, but when next he wakes up, it's dark again. He and Barry are in jail, and his pages are all gone. As soon as there's talking, the agent shows up, being just irrationally antagonizing. Apparently, to him, Lake's manuscript was proof that he was plotting to murder a federal agent. Sheriff Breaker isn't far behind, and she has had enough of this guy. He's an asshole, he's clearly drunk, refuses to state his business here, and has shot towards civilians a number of times now. The lights start to flicker, and Wake's head begins to pound, which means that the dark presence is nearing. The sheriff sides with Wake, refusing to allow Nightingale to make any more calls on the writer's fate. As soon as Alan is on his feet again, the agent pulls his weapon. This guy is just absolutely off his rocker. But as he is yelling, his own words jog his memory. He has read all of this before in one of Wake's pages. He tries to take them out of his pocket to reread them, but as soon as they're out, the police station is assaulted by the dark presence. It pulls Nightingale out the back door, and his fate for now is left a mystery. And after seeing that, whew, Sheriff Breaker is now fully on board with whatever Wake says too. Remember, her father was an agent with the Federal Bureau of Control, and she might not know what's actually going on here, but she potentially knows that there are unexplainable things out there in the world. Hell, maybe that's what drew her to Bright Falls in the first place. They are going to find Cynthia Weaver, and they're going to do it together. The sheriff knows where to find the old woman. She lives in a decommissioned power plant, and she'll get them there using a rescue chopper. Kind of a cool skill to have as a local sheriff, though she did once work for the FBI, and her father was with the FBC, so who knows what other secrets the sheriff holds. Sheriff Breaker gives Barry a job to make some phone calls, to tell the people on the other line the words Night Springs, and they'll know what to do. One of the people that Barry is going to call is her father, and that code is going to put him into action to alert the Federal Bureau of Control. At this point, the FBC is still under the control of Director Zachariah Trench, and they're about to be very aware that an AWE is taking place. Another person who will get the alert is Pat Main, the radio DJ. Wonder what Night Springs means to him. The sheriff says that they chose Night Springs as their code word because of an inside joke about the weirdness of the town though this is a level of weird that she's never experienced before. Together, they fight through the streets, killing swarms of the Taken and Dark Ravens. Barry is eventually forced out of the station, reuniting with them in a back parking lot. The now trio make their way up the mountain path to a proper road up to a fire station where the helicopter is stored. The Dark Presence has grown in power, and they can't hold out much longer against it. Cynthia Weaver is their last hope in stopping this thing. There are still people within Bright Falls, and if they fail, then everyone dies. The sheriff goes in for a drop nearby the power plant, but the chopper is attacked by a murder of crows when Alan tries to hop off. She's forced to leave him there and tells him that they'll just meet him at the power plant itself. And let commence another series of waves and obstacles, his goal being just across the river. Though the Dark Presence has a way of turning a one-mile hike into a two-hour spectacle. We, however, have no such inconvenience. When Wake finally makes it to the very bright decommissioned power plant, Cynthia Weaver is waiting, and she is immediately hostile. It takes Alan mentioning Thomas Zane and the Lady of the Light for her to lower her guard. She's been waiting a very, very long time for him to arrive, as per Thomas Zane's request. She's been doing this since the 1970s, and she's tired, though she never wavered. What he needs is within the well-lit room, she says. It will drive back the darkness. She built the well-lit room within the dam to keep it safe, 
And even better, Cynthia has a tunnel that will lead them straight there, a very well-lit tunnel. It seems that Cynthia Weaver is the one who has been putting signs and caches and supplies all around the town for Alan to find. She has spent the last 40 years preparing for these events. So even if she is a bit socially inept, she deserves a pass. But it is unfortunate that the whole reason she was so loyal to this cause was because she kinda had a thing for Thomas Zane. So once Zane was gone, Cynthia never moved on. She never made her own life. She stayed trapped in these emotions and obsessed over the mission that Zane gave her. She never got to create her own story. As they walk together through the tunnel, Cynthia tells Wake the story of what happened to Zane, all of it. Somehow, Cynthia Weaver knows of his writing, of his interaction with the lake, of him writing a story to bring Barbara back to life, and then writing himself out of existence. He had left a box in her care. She built the well-lit room, and she has stood guard over it ever since. Once they're within the pipe, Alan gives Barry a call to update him and the sheriff on where they're headed. Sounds like they're still in the helicopter for some reason. But then, Barry screams about something and a boom is felt within the tunnel. They have crashed. Wake has a straight shot to his finale, a safe way to reach an ending, but he refuses that path if it means abandoning Barry and the sheriff to the dark presence above. He has to go find them to see that they're okay if he can help them, much to Cynthia Weaver's disapproval. But she doesn't try to stop him. She continues down the tunnel towards the dam on her own to await his arrival from the ground level. The wreckage from the chopper is nearby. The flames are hard to miss against the dark night sky. But by the time he has arrived, maybe 10 minutes later, the flames have gone out and there's no sign of Barry or the sheriff. No bodies, no blood. So maybe they made it out before it crashed. Up the path, the blessed sight of a flare lights up the sky. The sheriff is angry and she's shooting. So they're okay. Barry is with her, and when Alan joins them, it evens the odds against the Taken encroaching on them. This is one of the best outcomes that he could have possibly hoped for. They still need to make the dangerous trek on foot to the dam, but at least they're okay. The dam is still a fair ways off, but there are stable and well-lit paths and stairs to mark the way, so at least they don't have to off-road it. They find an elevator to take them up the hillside to the top of the dam, where they'll find their entrance into the dam itself. It's a long ride up, and Wake tells them about Zane, who's more of a local cryptid than anything else. He left something behind for Alan, but what that could be, no one has any idea. At the door to the dam, Alan activates the door for the sheriff and Barry to go in, but as soon as they're separated, the dark presence blocks off the door. He has to make his way to another entrance all the way up at the top of the dam on foot. This is the most powerful that the dark presence has been thus far and it puts the full weight of its indignant rage behind its attacks. As with any good story, the hero cannot be safe. The dangers must be real, tangible. There must be a real risk of death when he's fighting his foes. If the story isn't believable, if it isn't organic, isn't true to form, if it doesn't follow its own rules, then it doesn't work. By the time he's at the top, a full-on storm of darkness is swirling around the dam, throwing vehicles and infrastructure around like toys but his friends are waiting for him. The elevator is ready to go, and once within, the darkness can't touch him. Within the well-lit room, within the box that Zane gave to Cynthia Weaver for safekeeping, were the writings of the old poet. As Alan read them, he recognized parts of his own childhood, things that Zane had written of. It's about his fear of the darkness when he was a child, and his mother's gift to him, the clicker and then directions to stand at the rim of Cauldron Lake, clicker in hand, and to jump. And at the bottom of the box is the clicker. Alan had given it to Alice a few years back, and here it is now. After Thomas Zane had returned to help save Alan Wake from that cabin, he had really taken care of everything. 
It's not known what gives the clicker its power to fight back against the darkness or what that even means yet. It could be that whatever Alan writes gives it powers, it could be an altered item, it could be the collective thoughts of Zane, his mother, and Wake himself that make it powerful, but let's see what happens when Alan clicks the button, shall we? He knows that the story still needs an ending. The final page is still in the typewriter. He needs to see what it says, and he needs to do it alone. When Alan Wake leaves the dam, it's bright outside. Was it the clicker? If so, what a powerful item indeed. There are too many unknowns yet to be certain, so let us continue on and see what happens in this finale. As Alan drives, he takes time for introspection, to question his own sanity again and reevaluate what he's going to do. It's, it's easier to do that now, when the sun is out and the chaos of the dark presence isn't looming. Things in the world seem to be right in the safety of the light. So what has he been doing all this time? But the first sign of trouble, to remind him of reality, comes within a tunnel where a blockade is set up, forcing him out of the car to travel on foot. His headache and flashing memories return, signaling that the Dark Presence is drawing near. It knows that Wake has knowledge and a weapon to use against it. No longer is it trying to regain control of him, it's going to do everything in its power to stop him from reaching the lake. In no time at all, darkness returns, as though it were night again, as though the reprieve of sunshine was purely temporary. He will need to find cars to steal and break into buildings to explore for supplies. He finds the motel where Agent Nightingale stayed at, and he takes a little break to explore his old dwellings and finger through all his things. I mean, wouldn't you? His room is a reflection of his poor mental state. Nightingale lost his mind after his partner vanished, when darkness entered his nightmares and it showed him Alan Wake's face. When his life spiraled into fear and paranoia, he came here to find the source. He found Alan, he blamed him for everything, and lost it all in the end. There's not a lot of time that he can spend here though, Alan needs to get moving. The longer he's on the road, the more jacked up things get. Cars clutter up bridges, fields are littered with burning debris, and shadows cast by the dark presence make the hills feel like they're moving, like the landscape is sickly or infected. He goes from highway, to side roads, through old abandoned settlements, to a mining cart ride, up mountainsides, onto old trails, through a dark forest, and a narrow gauntlet of almost certain death. But he finally reaches it, Cauldron Lake. Where Diver's Isle once lay is now a tornado, throwing boats and train cars and vehicles around like ragdolls. He has to dodge the debris, make harrowing jumps between platforms to reach the end of the dock. Once he's as close as he can possibly be, he unloads flares into the heart of the Dark Presence. And it works, it sends it away, but only briefly. It will gather its strength and return soon. He doesn't have much time left to act. He doesn't waste time monologuing or second-guessing anything that he is about to do. Alan Wake holds the clicker in his hand and he steps off the rocks, plunging down into the lake. When he awakens, it's in a panic. He's back home in New York and it's dark, just a strange eerie green glow about everything. Alice is with him, but she speaks in a voice not completely human and it's a far from convincing facade for a perfect evening. Alice is terrified of the dark, yet whatever this thing pretending to be her is has no issue with it. It wants him to give up, to just go back to bed, stop looking for the clicker. It follows him around the apartment, getting in the way, being creepy and abrasive using his wife's image. When he locates the clicker in the living room and turns it on, light floods into the room briefly, but with the light comes something else, what appears to be Thomas Zane in his diving suit. It tells him that he needs to get to the cabin. The dark presence will try to stop him. 
Its heart is made of darkness, and he must fill it with light. And then a double appears. And this, this is Mr. Scratch. Zane says that Wake's friends will meet him while he's gone. Mr. Scratch is Wake's evil counterpart. Every vile rumor or story that has ever been told or will be told of Alan, personified into a terrible being that will not be bound to the dark dimension. A killer, a sadist, a liar, a villain. But Alan doesn't know this. He thinks that Zane is helping him. Alan goes through to a strange place, tinted in green, swirling in darkness, covered in words that he lights up to reveal objects. He hears Alice's voice saying words to him that she had never actually said. It's his deepest fears. She's leaving him. She loves someone else. He never loved her. He is a failure. Then he hears Barbara Jagger saying manipulative things to Thomas Zane. What the Dark Presence did to Zane, it's now doing to Wake, using someone else to control them, to hurt them, to bring them to heal. Wake hears a confrontation that took place between them when Zane cut out the heart of Barbara and found only darkness within her corpse. Then he finds the cabin, the place that Zane told him to find, and within the lady in black waits, the elderly Barbara Jagger, with a hole where her heart should be. It taunts Wake, it tells him of its age, of its power, it needs only find a new face to wear, someone else to dream them free of this place if he will not do it. Alan plunges his fist into the hole where her heart should be and he turns on the clicker. It and the entire cabin is flooded with light. Barbara Jagger's form is cast away, nothing left behind. But this is not the end, oh no. Perhaps the ending of volume one, but there are far too many loose ends, too much story left to tell, too many adventures and torments for Alan Wake to experience in this dark universe. He can feel Alice's presence nearby. It's time to set her free. He knows how to finish departure. There needs to be balance. Everything has a price. Where Zane had tried to write himself a happy, self-serving ending, Alan must make compromises. There is a long journey still ahead of him. But for Alice, after all this time, she will simply swim to the surface of it all. She will emerge from Cauldron Lake the next morning, free from the darkness within it. Bright Falls itself will be okay. The townsfolk will have their Deerfest celebration. Soon, the Federal Bureau of Control will arrive on site to carry out its secretive investigations. Things will be noted, archived, taken into possession, interviews carried out. The FBC will come to know well the Dark Presence, the Shadow, as they call it. Within the investigation sector of the Old House, a Bright Falls AWE section was created to house all their evidence and items of interest. Emil Hartman will be of particular interest. He wanted to join forces with the FBC to study the lake and its potential, but the FBC had no interest. In fact, they found him in violation of the Ash Act, which states that parties who engage in tactics to utilize paranatural forces for their own benefit are to be prosecuted. He was eventually released after being deemed a low-level threat, but he refused to give up. As it was to be written by Alan Wake himself, eventually Hartman took a diving trip of his own down into Cauldron Lake, where he sort of died. Hartman came face to face with the Dark Presence and was taken by it to be a puppet. Thankfully, the FBC had been surveilling him and knew what he had done. They retrieved Hartman from the lake, and what came out was called Shadow Hartman. It was taken to the oldest house, to the Bright Falls AWE section of the investigation sector, and locked away. Alice Wake was taken to the oldest house as well, for interview, but she had very little to offer the FBC. 
She had been touched by the darkness of that place. She was a conduit for it, but she was quite innocent of the whole thing. But the thing that had been Hartman, it sensed Alice Wake, and it sensed Alan Wake through her. And the author wrote that she would be long gone before the consequences of that took place. Eventually, the thing that had been Hartman broke out of its containment, and the Bright Falls AWE section of the investigation sector had to be evacuated and locked down just to keep Hartman there. No one ever found Alan, though. Mr. Scratch appeared a few times, had some run-ins with Wake in the dark universe that he found himself in. But for the waking world of Earth, for Alan's family and friends, it was just sort of passed off that he had died. Alan Wake was no more, drowned in the lake. But in that dark place, Alan continued to plot, to write. He knew that he had to stop the dark presence. To save himself, to be free of this place, he would need a hero. He could not create people, he could not create events, create paranatural entities, but he could write events which would bring them together, perhaps sooner than otherwise would have happened. The invaders. They would be paranatural, beings of hostile resonance. They would speak in random nonsensical sentences, words cut together. Just plastic. You want to dream. Repeat the word. Baby, 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 yeah. Orange peel. You are home. Their invasion would bring a crisis, staff missing, life lost, a director gone. And with that would rise a hero, a call, reaching to them from a dark place. In the year 2019, the writings of Alan Wake came to pass when a young woman named Jessie Faden, a para-utilitarian, felt a calling to be at a very certain spot in New York City at a very specific time. After a very long silence, suddenly the resonance being Polaris would return to give her visions, to give her directions, her guiding star. At this place she was meant to be, she would become powerful. She would become the hero that Alan Wake would need in the future. Say hello to your new director of the Federal Bureau of Control. Really, this story is just beginning. <laughs>